Um, as I mentioned, we're going to be picking up our sermon series in Acts. Today we'll be looking at chapter 24, um, at, the, at the top of chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 1. And if you're looking at your pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 933. Again, that's page 933 of your pew Bibles. All right, I'll read. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or storing up the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came up to bring aims to my nation and to present offerings, excuse me, alms to my nation. While I was doing this, they found me purified of the temple, in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather, an, rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, 
Felix was succeeded by Pontius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. May God bless the reading of his word. I invite Pastor Jeff up now. Good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning, and uh, shout out to some of you, uh, some of our former youth. I see some of your faces who are back from college. Hope you guys had a good year. Uh, I want to begin this morning by sharing about an article, article I came across, a story of a man, uh, a missionary in Colombia. It was uh, reported by Christianity Today a couple years ago. His name is Russ Stendhal. He was a missionary in Colombia, and he would often travel through conflict areas, bringing Bibles and Christian books, even solar-powered radios that were fixed-tuned to his stations that broadcast the gospel throughout of Colombia. He would even bring them to the FARC, and that's the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. It was a guerrilla group that warred against the Colombian government until recently. Now, at one point, Senda was actually kidnapped by the FARC and, and spent more than four months living with them, oftentimes with a rope slip-knotted around his neck. And even while he was there, he would often share the gospel with his captor several times. Now, in this article, back in 2015, it was shared that Stendhal was being accused, being charged with, being one of FARC's terrorist leaders. He was accused of rebellion, of sedition, that, and that accusation was coming from the false and uncollaborated testimonies of four men who were looking for a payout, who didn't like what Stendhal was doing. And the charges laid against him basically alleged that his ministry, his gospel-centered ministry was actually a front. It was actually being used to help the guerrillas communicate with one another in their rebellion against the Colombian government. Now, all of this was false, but nevertheless, Stendhal was put on trial. He was being charged with rebellion, with sedition. And it wasn't until two years later that Stendhal was cleared and the Colombian government dropped the charge of rebellion against him. Now, looking back, I think it's fair to say that he was innocent of these charges. But, and, and really, the reason, the reason why he was on trial was that he was simply trying to be faithful to the preaching, teaching, the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what got him there in the first place. That's what put him on trial. Not what these charges were. Now, as we track with where Paul is in our passage this morning, I think there's some similarities, maybe not the exact same scenario, but there's some things in here that kind of reminds me, maybe reminds, reminds you of one situation or the other. And our court passage kind of lays out for us the court proceedings before Felix, the Roman governor. Paul is on trial. There are several charges laid out against him, charges which will ultimately prove to be false. But as we remember, starting back a few chapters ago, Paul uh, it starts a series of defense speeches where Paul is on trial. He gets moved from one person to another, and he needs to give a defense, uh, not just for the gospel, but for himself. And so there's two questions that we're going to be looking at in our passage this morning. Two questions that I think comes when it comes to a good reason, a good reason to be on trial. The first question, how do you plead? How do you plead? And the second question, well, what do you plead? So let's go through the first question, verses 1 to 21. How do you plead? 
faithful. I think that's what Luke, as he's capturing these events, as he's writing about Paul, is, and what Paul is doing is showing for us faithfulness, being faithful. So verse 1 sets the context for us as we kind of move our way through the passage. Ananias, the Jewish high priest, along with some Jewish leaders, and Tertullus, their, their lawyer, brings their case against Paul before Felix, the Roman governor. And so right before Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, he'd written a letter to Felix detailing the situation. It was at the end of the last chapter, verses, uh, chapter 23, verses 26 to 30. He says, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man, that's Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it is disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accuser also to state before you what they have against him. And so the point in this letter, in his letter, is that this guy, Paul, is guilty of things related to the Jewish people, but not to Roman society. Essentially, Lysias is saying, Felix, look, it's a religious issue. It's their personal issue. It doesn't concern us. Let them handle it. There's nothing here that Paul is doing that is deserving of death or imprisonment. But now, now you have the Jewish high priest who really doesn't like what Paul is saying and doing. He's coming directly to Felix the governor to try to bring charges against Paul. And so it's kind of hard for Felix, who's trying to maintain good relationships, who's trying to maintain law and order, to ignore one of the chief leaders of the Jewish people. And so notice the strategy of their lawyer, Tertullus. He begins with flattery. And so verses 2 to 3 says this, When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, and he's talking to Felix, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. He's kind of talking up Felix, right? Felix, the Roman governor, is in charge of keeping the peace. He's, uh, he's brought that peace, and, he's, and they've enjoyed it. And so this guy, this lawyer guy is saying, you're doing your job. You're doing a great job. Right? But now verse 5, now comes the charge, the accusation against Paul. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Right? So Paul is charged with threatening the very peace that Felix brings that Felix is in charge of maintaining law and order. Paul is charged with sedition, of stirring up riots and rebellion, of being a ringleader for the sect of the Nazarene. It's, in my mind, not, not unlike the charges being brought up that were brought up against Russ Stendhal. The Jewish leaders knew that, you know, in order for them to execute Paul, to kill Paul, right, they tried to do that with a mob, they tried to lynch him, it didn't really work. They didn't have the authority to actually execute him. So they had to transpose these religious accusations into political charges in order to get the governor to declare a sentence against Paul. They had to make it about 
the Roman society, the Roman government. And if they said the charge was simply about, hey, you know, Paul's theology, Paul's saying this about God's plan of salvation, not just for the Jewish people, but for Gentiles like you and I, which they didn't necessarily like, well, that doesn't really concern Felix, the governor. He probably doesn't have too much insight into it. He doesn't have, you know, the authority over that. You know, it's their issue. Let them handle it. But they, these People wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to stop his message. And the way to do that was to convict Paul in a Roman trial. And so the charges had to be political, not simply religious. The charge of rebellion, of sedition. And so after Tertullus brings these charges against Paul, Paul now is given an opportunity to defend himself. And so he offers, in just these few verses, verses 11 and 13, three defenses. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And so first, Paul's saying, look, the purpose of me coming up to Jerusalem was to worship, not profane the temple. You know, I was going up there to do what every other conservative Jew was doing, which was to Worship God. Second, you know, they didn't find me actually creating dissensions, stirring up riots, what these charges are saying. And Paul lists all these different places, right? The synagogue, the the temples, the city has all these places where it didn't happen. Which is a defense against the charge that, you know, they're calling him a plague, right? The word there is talking about him as a, a pestilence. That spreads from place to place. And so he's claiming, he's saying, look, I am not the contagious disease that they're making me out to be. And third, he says, they can't prove any of these charges. Because the people that would have been there to say that there was rebellion or riots aren't even here. They're not coming forward. There's no proof. And so how does Paul plead? This goes back to the question, this first question. How do you plead? Not guilty, but faithful. He says in verse 14, But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So Paul's point is that what he's saying, what he's sharing, what he is doing, is that the worship of God, the God of Israel, was synonymous with Jesus as the way. He was being faithful. Faithful to what God was doing. He goes further. Verse 17. I, I came to Jerusalem to bring a financial gift. An offering for Israel. Not to stir up riots. So Paul coming to Jerusalem was uh, not simply just to worship the God of Israel. And to share about what the God of Israel was doing, but also to support the people of Israel. It was for them as he brings this, these alms and these gifts. And even as he was in the temple, he says, I was following the customs. He purified himself. You remember back a few chapters in Acts 21. James and the church leaders had asked him to purify himself alongside these other four men who were finishing their Nazarite vow. And maybe in God's sovereignty and his providence, that would help to bolster Paul's claim. And that's what Paul did. 
And so he says, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, verses 18 to 20, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else that these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. And so added to that, Paul's again making the point that Tertullus and Ananias, the high priest, they can produce the people who should have been the ones to say, look, Paul was there to create dissension, to create division, to threaten the very peace that Felix is in charge of upholding. Those people who really should be there to charge him aren't even there. And so now this leads to Paul's point. The true reason that he's on trial, which is a good reason. He says in verse 21, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul's legal strategy was to reduce the charges from a political charge of sedition to a theological charge. To undo what these Jewish leaders are actually trying to do, which is to paint it as a political thing, as a rebellion, as a division, as a riot thing, when it's not. A dispute over the issue over the future resurrection of the dead. You might remember from I don't know, one or two weeks ago where he was before the Sanhedrin and he brings up this, this controversial uh, topic, the resurrection of the dead, because there's people on that Sanhedrin council, some, the Sadducees who don't believe it and the Pharisees who do. And so they start arguing, and Paul's saying, that's the reason why I'm really on trial today. And so we see here that if Paul was going to be tried as a follower of Jesus, it wasn't going to be because he was guilty of sedition or rebellion. It wasn't going to be because he was stirring up riots, creating dissension, sinning for God. It was going to be because he was faithful. How do you plead faithful, not guilty? And so let's be clear here on what that actually means, on faithfulness as the answer to the question, how do you plead? Right? Because sometimes we might be tempted to, to call something faithful when it's not. Right? Faith, being faithful is not being a keyboard warrior, right? if you know what that means. Faithful is not trying to stir up dissension and division, to pit one side against the other. And when we look at Paul and these charges, Paul was not actually guilty of the political charges of sedition laid out against him. It's not like Paul was saying, like, yeah, I actually did these things, but I'm going to frame it as faithfulness. That's not actually what was happening, right? The only thing he was guilty of was faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to the resurrection, the hope that he can have in it because of Jesus. There may be times where Christians will need to submit to God first and foremost instead of submission to other countries or governments, right? When countries prohibit the teaching and preaching of the gospel, when, when countries are persecuting religious minorities or people groups. But we have to be clear that submission to God doesn't mean sinning for God. Like preaching the gospel, right, standing uh, for truth and justice, right, but doing so in a way that is uh, divisive and unkind and ungracious is not what is being called for here. And we know the gospel message itself is offensive. 
but you and I don't have to be. And what does that mean? Why is the gospel so offensive? I have this fairly long quote from Tim Keller, and it's a reminder of, you know, though he recently passed in the past few days, we are grateful for his ministry and uh, now that he has entered into glory. Tim Keller explains what it means for the gospel to be so offensive, and he says this, The preaching of the gospel is terribly offensive to the human heart. People find it insulting to be told that they are too weak and sinful to do anything to contribute to their salvation. The gospel is offensive to liberal-minded people who charge the gospel with intolerance because it states that the only way to be saved is through the cross. It's not through, and I'm, this is me adding, right? It's not through self-improvement. It's not through trying harder. It's not through the quote that our worship leader Ted mentioned at the beginning of service today. Tim Keller continues, the gospel is offensive to conservative-minded people because it states that without the cross, good people are in as much trouble as bad people. Ultimately, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. The world appreciates religion and morality in general, but the world is offended by or the world thinks that moral religion is a good thing for society, but the world is offended by the cross. So people who love the cross are persecuted. The cross is by nature offensive. And we can only grasp its sweetness if we first grapple with its offense. If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. If it is neither of those two things, they haven't understood it. So do you see what what Keller was getting at? The gospel is offensive, he says, because the cross scans against all schemes of self-salvation. Right, Rooted deep in my heart and your heart, if we really start to peel back the layers and start to examine our attitudes and our, 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 our desires, right, is the desire to create our own salvation, to give meaning to our own lives, to be in control of that. And so we don't like hearing the message, no, you can't save yourself. It doesn't matter how good you are, how righteous you are. You and I are a sinner, fallen short of God's glory. And so there's only one solution. It doesn't come from you and I. It doesn't come from within. It comes from Jesus. And so yes, Jesus gives us meaning and purpose in life. But Jesus didn't come just to fill a hole in your heart. He came to be Lord over your whole heart. And so notice how Keller ends, right? If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. If it is neither of those two things, they haven't understood it. So in Paul's case, The example that he's giving for us, I think, this morning, is he he let the message of the gospel be offensive. But he didn't have to be. He didn't have to resort to rebellion, division, dissension, sedition. The very things that he was being charged with. So, How do you plead? Faithful. Second question, verses 22 to 27. What do you plead then? We see here Paul pleading, making a plea for faith in Jesus. 
So Felix decides to delay judgment on Paul's case, but he still visits Paul, and this time he brings his wife, Drusilla, and Paul seizes the opportunity to share more about faith in Jesus. And for us to kind of understand this interaction between the, t- the, the two of them, we kind of have to understand some of the, the background, the context, like the significance of Felix and Drusilla. Right? Drusilla was the youngest daughter of King Agrippa I, and she was already married at the time that Felix became kind of a sub- obsessed with her and consumed by passion for her. And so he convinces her to have her marriage dissolved, to leave her husband. So not only did she break the vows that she gave in marriage, but she married an uncircumcised Gentile, which at the time was not kosher, not con- contrary to the law. So Luke points out the fact that she was Jewish because it was extremely uncommon and unusual for a Roman to have a Jewish wife and for a Roman governor to be married to a Jewish woman. And so this is the background for what comes next. Right? Paul not only shares about faith in Jesus, but he goes further. He begins to reason about righteousness, about self-control, and the coming judgment. Paul doesn't shrink back, but he actually ties the gospel to and speaks to the very sins and moral failures that Felix and Drusilla were guilty of. And so there's an irony here, I think, right, that Paul is on trial before Felix. But as Paul begins to share the gospel, it highlights Felix on trial before God. And in sharing the gospel, Felix is coming to terms with his life and the reality of God's judgment. The gospel isn't just this thing that we memorize or these bullet points or these analogies. It's something that has an impact on us. It's not simply good advice about do this or do that. It's good news. It's about something that has already happened But because it's news, we have to respond to that news. It has relevance for us. And so here Felix is is coming to to terms with the fact that the the need to come to faith in Jesus, who alone has the power to save and to redeem us. But Felix's response is what? Fear. He's alarmed. He's upset. Verses 25 to 26, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, and so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So, So rather than receive the gospel, Felix would rather receive a bride. Rather than receive the truth of the message that is worth more than money, he'd rather settle for money itself instead. That was Felix's response to Paul's plea of faith. How do we think about our response? This morning I have in my hand one of our Crossbridge Coffee Ministry coffee cups. I'm not a coffee connoisseur. I grew up in Boston, so you get me a Dunkin' Donuts, and I'm perfectly okay. I don't really drink real coffee anyways. This is a rare occasion. I drink, like, frappuccinos and frozen coffee, like, just sugar, sugar water, sugar-loaded water. But I've been told, and I hear this a lot, that our, our coffee is in your ordinary church coffee. It's, like, actually good. 
So credit to our coffee ministry volunteers who come in every week to grind the beans, you know, fill the air pots. Now, I bring this up because sometimes many of us want a decaffeinated Christianity. You know, perhaps some of you, you've gone to Starbucks or Dunkin' with your friends. You order your coffee decaf, and they're like, decaf? That's blasphemy. Like, what are you doing drinking decaf? You know, one of our coffee ministry volunteers calls it sad bean water. I think a lot of this animosity right, comes because they say that decaf coffee and regular coffee aren't the same thing. Right? It isn't, right? But sometimes we drink decaf because we don't want the power that comes with the caffeine in coffee. Right? Maybe that's why at Crossbridge we don't have co- uh, decaf coffee <laughs> on the table. Right? Because we don't want it or we want you to have the power to stay awake during service. But really, it's, uh, you know, it's the same with, or similar with Christianity. Right? Like sometimes we want a decaffeinated Christianity. We don't want the power that comes from God. We don't want the power of a life transformed by God. We don't want that gospel to really hit the deep, deepest depths of our hearts, to expose our idols and our sinful desires and our attitudes. We want to be comfortable. We want to hold our coffee cup up so that it appears like we're everyone else in name, But on the inside of that cup is something entirely different. Sad bean water. Decaf. A decaffeinated faith is not a faith at all. Now when Felix is presented with Paul's plea of faith in Christ, a presentation of the gospel, sharing of the gospel that speaks very personally and hits close to home, that exposes the idols in his life, his response is fear. It's to dig into his sin, into his life, rather than to be delivered from it. So he rejects the decaf version completely. He doesn't even accept that. Right? He doesn't like what he hears. In our passage this morning, Paul continues to be on trial as he moves from person to person to person. He continues to put forth the fences for the gospel, for his ministry, for what he does. And as he continues to put forth his defense, to show that the reason, a good reason, that he is on trial, not because he is guilty of these charges, but because he is faithful to the gospel, and he pleads faith in Christ. Let us consider how we might continue in the same way. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the, these heroes of faith that have come before us, that have modeled for us what it looks like to be a faithful witness even under pressure, even under trial even under the hardships of life or the challenges of life. Help us, God, to consider how sweet the good news of Jesus is and that it is good news for us. And help us to proclaim that as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.